Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we praise you for all the great things that you have done. Lord, your name is above every other name. You have authority over all things because you created all things. You caused the sun to rise, the trees to bud, and the flowers to bloom. Everything that happens is for your great name and to bring you glory. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness because we constantly fail at giving you all the glory. All too often, we want the glory. Lord, we often fail to proclaim your great name. Spirit, help our words and actions proclaim what Christ has done in our lives. Please help us realize that the trials we go through are often for the purpose to sanctify us. Lord, thank you for your church, both the visible and invisible. Thank you for all the brothers and sisters in Christ that have gone before us so that we might look back and be encouraged by their dedicated life to you. And thank you for the people that you have placed in our lives today that we can lean on, encourage, disciple, and be discipled. Lord, I pray for your church in Burkina Faso. Lord, please strengthen Pastor Marcel as he trains other pastors. Lord, help the pastors then go out to their individual villages and proclaim your word. I also pray for the safety amongst your church in Burkina Faso. They are truly your warriors in a hostile land. Please keep them safe. Lord, I also pray for your local church. I pray for the Medina family as Ryan's mother is in, at home on hospice. Lord, please pray or please comfort them and strengthen them through this time. If there are family members questioning your goodness and love in this difficult time, I pray that your gospel is proclaimed and they are drawn to you. Lord, I also give you praise for the healthy delivery of Jordan and Spencer's new baby boy, James. Lord, thank you so much that we as a church body can rejoice in the gift that you have given them. We praise you. I also want to pray for the Bible studies that start this week. Lord, use this time to strengthen our love for your word. May you be glorified in our study, our discussions, and our lives as we go forth into the community. Lastly, Lord, I thank you for the preparation Hans has put into studying your word. Thank you for his dedication Sunday after Sunday. Spirit, please illuminate our hearts and our minds and draw us to Christ through the preaching of God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. You can have a seat. Good morning to you. And uh, good morning to you if you're visiting for the first time. Uh, we'd love to chat with you. I'd love to introduce myself. Feel free to come on up and chat with me after service. Um, we're glad that you joined us this morning to fellowship together. For the ministry of the word this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, but we're going to actually read uh, from 2, 1 on, uh, but the main focus of the, the uh, sermon is going to be 3, 1 through 4. So as you're turning there, as you're turning there, we can ask the Lord's goodness by his spirit one more time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Uh, that you have brought us here this morning by your providence. We thank you that you have prepared this word by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit and given it to the Apostle Paul, and you have used it throughout the centuries for the edification of your church. We pray that it would be edifying for us this morning, that it would impart wisdom to us, that we would be able to put aside our sinful hearts 
and listen with the hearts that are tuned uh, towards your wisdom. We pray that you would do this by the Spirit, that you would help us to crucify any secondary motivations or any flesh that might stand in the way of hearing your truth. And we pray that we as people and as a church would walk out of this building changed because of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite classes in graduate school was a class known as Human Lifespan Development. I've referenced it in prior teachings. It was an extremely helpful class in both parenting and coaching. Uh, If conflict often comes from misaligned and unspoken expectations, it is extremely important for those of us that work with developing minds, whether that be parents, coaches, teachers, pastors, uh, that we understand what the capability is of the person sitting in front of us. For example, as a parent of infants, I would ask my children to do multiple step tasks and then wonder why they would only do the first step. Any parents ever get into that with smaller children? So it was helpful to me when I found out that at their age, their growing brains could only take in one task to complete at a time. As a coach, it's important that you coach to the age level you're working with. If you're too, uh, too advanced or too behind in what their minds or bodies can take, you'll either exasperate them or bore them to death. And this development, psychosocially and physically, continues throughout our lifespan. There are reasons that we slow down as we get older. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Our bodies are not as limber or flexible or resilient as they once were. Our knees are a bit weaker. A few of you know what that's like. This connection of appropriate development and its outward manifestation is even a source of great amusement for some. There is a YouTube star that my kids find absolutely hilarious because most of the videos are him, as a grown man, imitating different younger ages of development. Just imagine for a moment if we took all of the adults in this room and moved them over to that side of the building and put them in the fellowship hall and asked us to move and talk and behave just like those 12 and under. It would be a sight to behold, right? All of this has to do with holding the appropriate expectations for the individual based upon where they are developmentally, what we can expect out of them due to where they are in their lifespan. Now, long before the term human lifespan development was ever authored, the Bible spoke to a similar idea. Take Proverbs, for example. There is an expectation of foolishness and lack of wisdom in the young, and wisdom in the aged. As Proverbs Proverbs is a book of principle-level ideas, it does not dismiss the idea that there can be foolish older people, and there can be wiser younger people as exceptions to the rule. But overall, it is true that with age, with development and experience, wisdom will come. Now, we've messed that up greatly in our society because of technology. Children think, because I'm good at technology, and my parents are not, I must have more wisdom than they do. And there's become confusion about this. So the Bible talks about this idea of human lifespan development, of maturity and immaturity. And Paul will talk about this subject to the Corinthian church as well. He will do so a handful of times. He will speak to boys becoming men and children maturing into adults. In 1 Corinthians 16.3, for example, he will exhort the Corinthian men to act like men. And these ideas originate here in our text this morning within the broader comments he has made on the topic of God's wisdom versus man's foolishness. And this idea is within the context of the subject of division in the church. He's going to speak to the idea that division is foolishness. 
So Paul will be addressing the topic of development. But he will be doing so, excuse me, using not the physical lifespan of the members of the Corinthian church, but the spiritual lifespan. Paul will suggest that the Christian who has been converted by the Spirit of the Holy God will show a development that will result in a way of living that reflects Christ and lives in growing obedience to his rule in their lives. And Paul will make this suggestion by way of a very stern rebuke. And all that he has been suggesting thus far, all that we've been studying in chapter 2, will lead to this very pointed rebuke of the members of the church that are acting like carnal Christians. Now, if you're not familiar with this term, I'm going to define it and discuss where it comes from because it's an idea that sits behind much of how the contemporary church at large teaches the topic of salvation and conversion and the topic of sanctification. The text often pointed to as backing for this idea of carnal Christians predominantly comes from our text today. So we will need to understand it and see what the Bible actually teaches on the topic. And this will most likely make the application of what Paul states very practical for us. We need to heed the tone of Paul's rebuke and let it bring conviction and action. But we're not going to stop there. As we unpack this idea, we will also need to see that Paul is rebuking the Corinthians and bringing a disciplining word to them because of his great love for them. And in this, we will see the great hope that Paul has for them as a church and the hope that we can glean from from this section as well. And so this morning, Paul will educate us and give us theological truth, powerful application, and hope for our growth in Christ as he provides what I am calling a hopeful rebuke to the carnal Christian. A hopeful rebuke to the carnal Christian. Now, you'll notice that I have carnal Christian in quotes there, and I'll describe why in a bit. But let's go ahead now and read our text this morning. And to get the context, we're actually going to start in verse 1 of chapter 2. We'll read in context, and then we will come to our text today in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Let's begin. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ... And him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And now our text for this morning. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see in verses 1 through the first part of 3 is a stern rebuke for immaturity. A stern rebuke for immaturity. Now let's think through this a little bit and paint the picture fully before we unpack these verses. In the first chapter, verses 10 through 17, we see that there is strong division in the church. Factions had formed in the church following after leaders based on worldly human wisdom. And this led to a kind of spiritual hierarchy in the church, and factionalism followed. So Paul has spent the last two chapters dealing with that theology, the theology that allows them to have divisions. Take a look there in verse 10 of chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul has spent this whole time trying to help them understand that in Christ, Christians are unified. They're not divided, especially over factionalism in the church. He's asking them a question that will become blatantly clear in the next few sections. He's asking them, to paint the picture of what the church is supposed to be. And he's going to ask them what the foundation of the church should be. Is it a leader? Is it a certain philosophy? Is it a sub-theology? No, it's Christ. Is it going to be a syncretism of the parts of Christianity that they liked by worldly standards, mixed with Greek culture and spirituality? Was it going to be on a cracked foundation of human wisdom and philosophy that they had gathered from the traveling sophists? Or was it going to be on the gospel of Christ and him crucified? And so he says there in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then he points to it again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul wants the Corinthian church to stop building on a rotten foundation. He wants them to go back to the basics and make sure that their foundation is secure, that their foundation is securely in Christ and his death, resurrection, and enthronement. And as with all his letters, Paul builds a basis of orthodox theology, orthodoxy, that leads to orthopraxy, right doctrine that leads to right action. But then Paul starts to make a distinction in the previous two sections that we've covered. He points out that they are imparting this wisdom of the cross to the people in Corinth, and those who are converted at the heart will naturally begin to gravitate towards right doctrine that leads to right action. And notice the word he uses to describe them in verse 6. He says, yet among the mature, the mature, this is a developmental word. It is someone who has moved through the initial stages of development. And what Paul calls these people is the truly spiritual. A spirituality, so-called, that leads to strife among the people of God is actually immaturity and no actual spirituality at all. But a mature person is one converted to affections that desire obedience in Christ, including unity in the gospel. Hearing and accepting spiritual truths because the mature have as he says in verse 16, the mind of Christ, graciously provided to all who are Christians by the Holy Spirit and confirmed in his word. And Paul then places these people in contrast to another group in verse 14, the natural person, the natural person who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In fact, they believe themselves, or they believe the things of God to be foolishness because they can only be spiritually discerned. And this is the setup that takes us directly into our text this morning. We have to see it in its literary context to fully understand it. Because just as he started chapter 2 with, and I, when I came to you, now he says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. I could not address you as the truly mature in Christ. He wants to. You can see his heart. He wants to, but he can't. Instead, he says, I had to address you as people of the flesh. The Greek word behind the English word flesh here is translated into Latin in the, in the original uh, Catholic Vulgate as carnalis, from which we get the English word carnal. He says, you're carnal. You're people of carnality. So we can be honest right now that if we detach the text from the surrounding context and all that Paul is doing with the letter, we can see how someone would say that there is a third group besides the spiritual and the natural that's kind of this middle ground of the carnal Christian. We can be honest with that. After all, he calls them brothers. He says, in a sense, they're Christians, and yet they're people of the flesh, right? Well, we'll see, because that's not exactly what he's saying. For those of you who have never heard this phrase before, let me explain 
how it is popularly understood in the church at large. You may have never heard this phrase, but if you've been in the church at all in America, you understand its underlying premise. The carnal Christian view is the view that there can be people that have trusted in Christ as Savior. In other words, they've gone through an altar call and said, yes, I want Jesus to save me from my sins. But they have not confessed him as Lord. They've declared with their mouth and believed in their heart, supposedly, that Jesus died for their sins and resurrected. But then they are still living a life in consistent disobedience to Christ's rule over their lives as Lord. In the early church, this was a view known as antinomianism. We've discussed this many times before. Anti, against, onomon, the Greek, law, against the law. It views grace as contrary to obedience to God's law. It's anti-authority. One author puts it this way. Advocates of carnal Christianity charge that if we affirm that good works are necessary in the life of the believer... They assert that we necessarily deny that justification is by faith alone. But friends, this is a gross misunderstanding of what grace actually means. The grace of God is a grace to save us from ourselves, give us a new heart with affections for Christ and his law, and motivation to then push forward in growth in following in obedience to Christ. It is not a perfection. If it were, I would not be speaking to you right now because I would be absolutely disqualified. And I think all of you would as well. Because it's not perfection. Perfection comes in glory when we're with the Lord in new bodies. Praise God. But there is a growth that will naturally occur in the life of the Christian. And so this idea of the carnal Christian or antinomianism, well, it was a known heresy. It still is a known heresy. It's known to be contrary to Scripture. But again and again, it has reared its ugly head. You can see Dietrich Bonhoeffer fight back against it in the middle of last century as he fought against cheap grace and easy believism. But the idea became massively prominent in the American evangelical mind due to materials and ideology put forward by Bill Bright through the parachurch group he started known as Campus Crusade. It was specifically proclaimed in their widely distributed book, The Spirit-Filled Life. His teaching and materials taught that one could have Jesus in their heart, but not on the throne of their heart. So if this is true, then our question as those who sit under the lordship of God's word should be, is that what Paul's actually saying? Has Paul created a third category besides the spiritual person, the Christian, who sits under the lordship of Christ, and the natural person, the non-Christian, who doesn't sit under the lordship of Christ? Has he created a third category? Now notice, in the section before, Paul gives two categories and only two categories. Paul then steps in and says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. So there's an immediate contrast. He's addressing them, because they were not of the spirit, but of the flesh when he first came to them and preached to them nothing but Christ and him crucified. Friends, a simple survey of scripture will declare clearly, and we've covered a lot of it in our previous Lordship series, that one cannot have Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. That is an impossibility. 
As one piece of evidence, the book of Revelation, properly interpreted, clearly declares that during the church age, as a result of the cross and resurrection, Christ is enthroned as king over his people, the church. Just think of Christ sitting as the reigning sacrificial lamb in Revelation 5. What was it that was declared to him in praise? To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Or maybe Revelation 7, where all his people, chosen and sealed and numbered from every tribe and tongue, are declaring his praise as enthroned king. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, but he stands next to the throne. Is that what it says? No, it says salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The picture here is the idea that the Lamb is one with the Father God. And we could go into this with Daniel 7 and everything else, but the Father God has brought him to the right hand of the throne. In other words, if you've ever watched any medieval movies, in another throne. He's sitting to the right hand of the Father in a throne. He's ruling on behalf of the Father God, the Creator. There is no way that he can be standing off to the side. He is seated on a throne. One who has declared Christ as Savior has also automatically confessed him as Lord that reigns over his life. And that is why the proof of whether or not someone has been converted is simply time and a witness of their behavior. If a person confesses Christ as Savior, but then does not show that Christ rules, well, I would submit to you that Scripture says he has not met the true and risen Christ. So if Paul is not saying that it is possible to have Christ as Savior, but not Lord, what is he saying? Because he would be going against the rest of Scripture. Well, notice his next phrase. He says, you are people of the flesh, infants in Christ. So this is not a third distinct group, an identity, if you will, a category, if you will, in the idea of Christianity. This is a developmental understanding of the already named groups, specifically the spiritual. The Greek word here behind infant is someone who is a small child above the age of a helpless infant, but probably not more than three or four years of age. So the original audience would have completely known what he meant. He was referring to them as babies in Christ. He was calling them a bunch of babies who were throwing fits. Accordingly then, Paul fed them when he first met them with developmentally appropriate food that would sustain them, and they could take it in. Any of us who have had small children know that you do not serve uncut filet mignon to a child that needs milk. Not only would they not be able to eat it, it would kind of be a waste, right? Taste buds that couldn't taste it, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, Paul says he fed them with milk, not solid food. For they were developmentally within their spiritual walk, not ready for solid food. What is the milk he refers to here? Well, he already told us, at the core, it's the gospel. The news that all humanity, due to its rebellion in our original father Adam, and in each individual thereafter, sits justly under the wrath of a holy God. But God loved so faithfully 
that he sent his son to take on the consequences of that wrath upon the cross at Calvary. And that justice that God rightly should pour out in his wrath was taken on. It was fulfilled and displayed on the cross. And Christ then showed that that wrath had been fully taken and the consequences of sin and death had been destroyed. He showed this in his victorious resurrection from the grave three days later. In that resurrection, he was also enthroned as the first of God's redeemed people and our king. And he welcomed us into his kingdom by his spirit. He called us in by his mercy and grace and forgave us of our sins so that we might be one with the holy creator God. If this is news to you this morning, if you've not heard this before, and yet it strikes you as something you need to know more about, please come see one of the pastors after the gathering. We would love to chat with you more about it and what it means for you because this is not a myth, this is not a story. This is an event that happened in history. A man named Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross either completely foolishly or because what he said and what he declared in his preaching was true, that he is God who took on humanity and died in our place as a substitute so that the wrath of God might be poured out on him so that we might be forgiven and drawn into his presence. We must deal with this. From this base gospel, God converts. He draws people to himself. He changes the heart. He places a new heart in them. And the Christian that has been converted from the heart by the Holy Spirit then begins to grow because God is faithful to complete the work that he has begun. And that growth is put this way in Hebrews 5, 13 through 14. The author of Hebrews says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Friends, this is why we are pushing so heavily that Christians are in Bible study. Christians learn how to read the word as it was originally intended so that we might disciple one another, so that we might grow, because this practice does not come without work. It is studying the word of righteousness, learning and applying and practicing the commands of Christ throughout Scripture. But the Corinthians, like any brand new converts from paganism, or maybe you, if you're here this morning and you've never touched a Bible, you've never set foot in a church, you're not ready to receive the fullness of Scripture. I'm not going to turn you to the book of Habakkuk and ask you to break apart prophetic poetry and just understand it. No, we're going to preach to you the gospel that I just spoke. And from that work, God is going to do a work in your heart, and you're going to find an affection that I have to know more. What does this book say? What does he say to his people? I need it like a deer who's thirsty, panting after water. I want it. And then the work begins. But the Corinthians, again, and like any brand new converts from paganism, were not ready because you don't teach algebra to someone who's still learning the addition of basic numbers. But this is where we pause to consider the idea of development. 
Development innately means there will be ongoing growth. I love my three children. I loved them as babies. The stage where they ate, needed changing, slept, and played a bit, it was great. It was awesome. Could hold both of my twin boys in my hands at the same time. But I'm so glad for their development because as they are now moving into early preteen and teenage years, I feel like a much better parent. It's no longer elementary instruction, loving care, and consistent discipline. Those were hopefully established, and the effects continue, and we continue doing those things. But now, man, there's added conversation. There's working through difficult trials and deep emotions together. All of this is built off of the earlier foundation. When they were younger, I was excited to play kids' board games with them and video games and Legos and binge on candy with them as their every need was provided by their mom and myself, mostly their mom. But if that's still the case when they're 35, there's going to be some hard conversations, especially if that's the case that they're still living under our home when they're 35, our roof. Why? Because development is expected. It's the same in marriage, isn't it? If a marriage doesn't develop and change with experience and years past and trial and tribulation, if it just stays in the puppy dog level of infatuation, there will be great problems. True love needs to go through various stages, including the stage where you choose to love even when it is hard. That is a mature, developed love. And so, friends, we get this idea and understanding of development, don't we? And so this is where we hear Paul's next statement, and we realize this is not Paul in any way creating a third category of Christian, uh, Christian where you can confess Christ as Savior but not Lord. No, this is a stern rebuke where Paul is saying, Corinthians, what is happening currently ought not to be if you are truly spiritual people. And even now, Paul says, you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. Paul is directly questioning them on whether that immaturity was actually immaturity at all. Or are they actually just natural people who never had the spirit in the first place? He is rebuking them to point out the fact that if they actually have the spirit, they will not stay in a stunted development. No, they will develop. They will grow. They will mature. And that maturity, going back to chapter 2, verse 6, is that they will stop depending upon the foolish wisdom of the world. They will instead give their lives over to the wisdom of God's word by itself and itself alone. Paul's intent is to hold up a mirror to them so they can see themselves and respond. Now, before you think I'm coming at this with self-righteousness, let me illustrate this with a story of confession in my own life. <sighs> when I was in my very early 20s, newly married, I was also recently laid off from my job. A good friend of mine at the time, the man who was my best man in my wedding, had just gotten back from playing professional basketball in Europe, and so I was not very motivated to get a job. I thought we'd just hang out. Now, while my young, hardworking wife would go off to her job each day, I would welcome my friend over to hang out, eat lots of junk food, and play video games. Now, realize, 
I'm not 12 in this story. Now, all the while, our bank account was getting smaller and smaller. Newly married. Great idea, right? After a few weeks of this, my wife came home, pulled open the curtains because it was dark in there, got the smell out because it was just a couple of guys acting like teenage boys, and looked at me playing video games, not having any, done any housework at all, and she calmly and graciously told me that it was time to find a job to pay the bills. Now, to her credit, she said it very graciously, but in essence, when it translated through the airwaves and hit my eardrums, what I heard was, it's time to be a man. Now, you really have one of two ways to respond. You can dismiss it and suffer the consequences in your voluntary blindness. You can make excuses for it. Well, I had a hard childhood. Or you can get a bit fired up because you realize that your identity is that you want to be a man. You don't want to be seen as a baby, as a boy. And so the thought occurred to me in that moment, by the grace of God, maybe I should act like it. I'm pretty frustrated that my wife thinks I'm a boy, but she has a point. So maybe I should prove to her that I'm a man. Well, I went out and I got a job. And luckily, she stayed married to me. <laughs> Friends, this is what Paul is doing. He's holding up a mirror, lovingly rebuking the men and women of the Corinthian church that lack maturity, and he's showing them that they are, in fact, displaying evidence of immaturity. Evidence of immaturity. And this is a good pastor. What a good pastor that he's doing this. He's not being mean. He's not shaming. He's being a good shepherd. Look at Paul's next statement. Let's read the second half of verse 3. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul points to the strife that he'd already noted in chapter 1, but now he adds the descriptor of jealousy. What was it that they were jealous of? Well, judging by the whole of the letter, it was jealousy of connection to a given leader, jealousy of the perceived spiritual standing of someone else, jealousy of roles within the church, jealousy of wealth and status in Corinth. Rather than love and unity, jealousy and strife characterize this local church. And this was the opposite of the love of Christ that was supposed to be their main characteristic as those who are captured by the Holy Spirit. He'll say this in chapter 13. I'll show you a still more excellent way, the way of loving one another. But instead of acting in a spiritual way, they are only acting in a human way. To add to division is after the old humanity of Adam. It's merely human. It is not the unity brought about by the Spirit in the new humanity of Christ. Now, why is this evidence of immaturity? Because Paul links immaturity in Christ to being enamored with and driven by the wisdom that comes from the world. Friends, if you are enamored with what you see on TikTok more so than the word of God, there's problems. If you're enamored with the talk show radio hosts more than you are the word of God, there's problems. 
If you're enamored with websites that are all about conspiracy theory, more so than the Word of God, there's problems. Paul links maturity in Christ to being enamored with and driven by the wisdom that comes from the world, not the Word. The world loves disagreement for the sake of disagreement, tribalism for the sake of tribalism. The core ethic is the same as what it was at the Tower of Babel, everyone making a name for themselves. And this is where the jealousy came in. Jealousy that in our expectation, we deserve a name that has been given to someone else. But the gospel of Christ is singularly unifying in a way that no other endeavor can be. Why? Because those that make up God's true people live, die, and will resurrect to make the name of Jesus Christ great as Lord and King. We make much of his name because his name is what the entirety of creation is about. We make much of his name because he came as our compassionate and merciful savior and because he will return as conquering king and just judge to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. It is this endeavor of making his name great that should automatically unify us. In everything we do, we are to glorify Christ. And the way we glorify him is to re-speak what he has spoken. It is to preach what he has preached. It is to take in, be instructed by, and proclaim his word to the world around us. And this is what Paul will do for the rest of the letter. He will point to Christ again and again. He will point to the whole story of God and the whole character of God as evidenced in both Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord and Judge. And Paul will call the Corinthian church to conform their understanding to this truth so that their behavior follows suit. Friends, if we do not want to conform our way of living to the word of God, 1 Corinthians is going to be very disappointing and very frustrating for you because it will hit every sacred cow we have. You see, friends, when the Holy Spirit breaks through into our lives and instructs us in righteousness and convicts us of sin that has now been brought into submission to Christ, we are bound to grow. We can't do anything but grow. And this was Christ's point in the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils. The Holy Spirit plants the seed of the gospel into the soils of hearts made new by his justification, and that seed will then grow. Let's read Christ's uh, explanation of that parable. Many of you know it. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke, the, choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Notice that there will always be growth, maybe in differing sizes, so to speak, but there will always be growth. A seed that grows and matures will eventually produce fruit. Like a maturing fruit tree, there, may be, there will be evidence of that fruit, and if not fruit itself, there will be evidence of fruit that's coming. There will be, at a bare minimum, in the early years, growth. 
Maybe not the fruit you can find in years five or six of a planted fruit tree, but you will notice growth. And this was the problem. Paul had planted the church and planted the seed of the gospel a few years prior to this writing. He expected to hear of fruitful growth, even if that's just an omission of some of the worldly wisdom. But all he heard was that they were acting more like the fallen Adam than like the risen Christ. They were merely acting human, not acting as those who had been given spiritual wisdom by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are presented with this rebuke this morning by the Holy Spirit. And while we are not the local church at Corinth, we are Christ's people. And we know that the Holy Spirit uses these letters written 2,000 years ago to a local church in Greece to speak to us here and now in Salem. And so we must ask ourselves, do any of us in this room need this rebuke? Does this resemble any of us? Does this resemble me? Have I unknowingly bought into the false understanding that I can just exist as a carnal Christian? Do I believe that I can have Christ as Savior, maybe some of his lordship over the parts of my life that are easy to give to him, and then the rest, well... Perhaps there's an area of your life that Christ has brought conviction through his spirit. Perhaps someone has said something to you, or maybe you have just even known openly that you must change in this area, and yet you or I justify ourselves in our sin. Perhaps it's your thought life. Perhaps it's an expression of your sexuality. Perhaps it's abusing substances or escaping through addictions or escaping through your phone or binge-watching TV, or escaping through your work. Perhaps it's self-righteousness or pride. Perhaps it's gossiping or jealousy. Perhaps it's bitterness that you hold in your heart with an unwillingness to reconcile or forgive. Perhaps it's that in your marriage. Perhaps it's poor stewardship with your money or with your health. Perhaps it's laziness. Perhaps it's an omission of grace or love or compassion. Or maybe perhaps it is knowingly following the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of the word in how you raise your children. Where is it that the Spirit has brought conviction and yet you or I have said, I don't think so? Friends, if that exists in our lives, Paul would rebuke us as well and ask, when you persist in this, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, secondly, we must ask, do we see growth in our own walk with Christ? What avenues am I even pursuing that growth? Do I understand the instruction and truth of the Lord more today than yesterday? Have I seen change in myself by the reforming power of the Holy Spirit since I was first called to Christ? What growth do I see right now, even in this last week? These are all questions that Paul's rebuke should cause us to examine. Because, friends, if you're honest with yourself, every one of us in this room have something that we need to conform to Christ. 
Paul was not commending the Corinthians in their sin as if it was normal to be a quote-unquote carnal Christian. Nor was he casting them aside and declaring them as some horrible, unsavable party. His whole point in giving this rebuke is that Paul has hope that if the Spirit is truly at work in them, that they will repent and lean into obedience to Christ as King. You see, in this rebuke, there is so much hope, so much love, and so much good pastoring. And that is what I would like to finish with this morning. The hope behind the rebuke. And friends, this is not me just taking a heavy teaching and going, oh boy, I want them to finish with something positive. This is the truth of what is here, and I'll show you why. Hopefully it is obvious to all of us now that Paul is offering this rebuke because he is not content with the state of the Corinthian spiritual lives. Oh, Paul, you just, you ask too much. You're trying to raise up Navy SEALs for Christ or something. A literal quote I've heard before. No, he's not content, and that's a good pastor. He is challenging them and disciplining them in order to bring about change. And he's doing so because while a Christian may have a period of immaturity, we all do, friends, the Christian will not stay there for long. To exist in that state for too long means that there actually might be a hardening of your heart against what the Spirit is bringing as conviction, and you may not actually have the Spirit at all. So God disciplines us, often through his people, often through his word, such as with Paul's rebuke, to bring about repentance and humble submission to his leading. Let's read an even larger section of our earlier reading from Hebrews, where we hear something very helpful in this regard. Would you turn with me to Hebrews 12? Hebrews 12. If you hit James, you've gone too far. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, notice that, friends, if we're Christians, what are we constantly doing? Struggling against sin. Hopefully having victory at times, right, and getting over it, but all the while fighting. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, just caveat here, any of you who are into gentle parenting, run that through this filter, and you will see that it is absolute garbage from the pit of hell. If you've bought into gentle parenting, huck it. It's garbage and anti-biblical. Back to the word. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. As a son or daughter of the kingdom, that's scary. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, if you are a Christian, this should be your hope. Please, Lord, discipline me so I can share in your holiness. Paul, attempting to reflect the good correction and discipline of God, is similarly calling the Corinthian church to respond, to see themselves rightly, much like I had to see myself rightly in those early years of marriage, and respond in the opposite direction. Much like I have to see myself constantly when those of you that love me bring to my attention that I am not acting in accordance with the ways of Christ. Paul would not bring this discipline if he did not have hope. It has been said that the opposite of love is not hatred, but apathy. And if Paul simply left the situation alone in Corinth, he would be doing so out of apathy. But because he loves them, he disciplines them, he rebukes them. And from that rebuke, he hopes to see the peaceful fruit of righteousness in them. And we know that Paul has hope because he initiates the whole section of chapter 3 with the greeting, brothers. And in the Greek, that means brothers and sisters. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people in the flesh. It's as if Paul is assuming the best about these church members. Perhaps they do want to be spiritual, led by the Spirit of Christ. They just have not been trained or instructed in the truth. And so Paul thinks perhaps if they can be instructed, they will respond. And so Paul gives a hopeful rebuke to the carnal Christian. And by now, hopefully, you can see why I put that title in quotes. There is really no such thing as a carnal Christian. There are those who have a new heart by the Spirit, growing and maturing. Bumps in the road, yes, but always growing and maturing. And then there are those that are natural men and women devoid of the Spirit. But this morning, I think that more than a few of us in this room might be able to receive this rebuke from Paul. And if not this morning, perhaps you can recognize times in the past where this has been true, for we all go through times, especially early in our walk with Christ, where we realize that our confession of Christ as Lord is not matching our behavior or our pursuit of him in his word or our love for his people. And so we can hear this rebuke and think, oh man, that is me. But this is where it's good news that there are actually only two categories that Paul uses. For friends, it is impossible if you have been given a new heart and a new spirit by God, you can't lose it. And so in those moments of battling with the flesh, where it feels like the flesh is winning, your entitlement, your selfishness creeps up, we must remember our true identity by way of this same rebuke. We are not merely human as Adam or Eve. We have been resurrected in Christ, and we have been made part of the new redeemed humanity in Christ's image. And so if we feel like we fit into this category of being only fleshly, we must remind ourselves that we are no longer so, and we do so by leaning into Christ with everything we have. For trying to do it in our own Energy and effort will fail and harden us against Christ more. So when we are told, act like a man, we don't stand up and flex our muscles. We fall down at the feet of Christ and say, Lord, I am a child. I know nothing. I have nothing. 
So please, God, change me. Only you, by your grace, can change me. Only you, by your grace, can help me fight against sin. Only you, by your grace, can make me humbly submit myself to people I don't want to submit to. It is only by your grace. And so we must remind ourselves of our true identity, that we have been conquered and crucified with Christ and brought into his kingdom to sit under his rule. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, describes this better than I ever could, so let's go ahead and go there. Last place I'll turn you, Romans 8. Romans 8, 1 through 11. He just got done in chapter 7 talking about this fight between his flesh and his spirit. And he says this in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, notice that, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What he means there is, if we just took more of the law on ourselves and said, I'm going to try harder, well, we show ourselves to be weaker. We're, We're overcome more. But God did something. What did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So you can see now that the same author, Paul, is saying to the Corinthian church, guys, you continue in this fleshliness, you're going to die. You're going to show that you were never alive in the first place. But he continues, verse, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, friends, if you're fighting against the Lord and his conviction, just trying not to is never going to work. It's never going to work. You're going to get harder and harder and more entitled and more selfish and more angry and more bitter. It will never work. You cannot do it. You cannot please God. But here's the good news. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of sin. Of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is why we fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, you have given me your spirit. Empower me to be led by the spirit. Kill my flesh so I stop fighting him. John MacArthur states it so well. He says, It is essential to understand that carnality is not an absolute state in which a believer exists, but a behavior pattern he chooses one moment at a time. To say it another way, a Christian is not fleshly in the sense of being, but in the sense of behaving. A commentary on MacArthur's quote summarizes summarizes it this way. A Christian might act in a carnal way, but they can never be carnal by identity. Paul knew this and was trying to get Corinth to understand it 
And he's trying to get Mission Fellowship to understand it today. If the Corinthians are truly in Christ by his spirit, the spirit will be leading them and will be leading you and I in that identity and that identity alone. So friends, if you have the spirit within you, this challenge, this rebuke will spark in you a desire to crucify the flesh, to put that into application and let the spirit lead you in paths of righteousness for Christ's glory. And when you feel defeated, doubting if the Lord has saved you, you can ask the Spirit to remind you of what fruit has occurred and is occurring in your life. Friends, I've had those moments of darkness where I think, is the Spirit even present in my life? And then I think back and look at what Christ has done and is doing, and then that reminds me in that moment he is not done with me, but he is asking me to surrender further to his leading. You can even ask those who you've been walking with, what fruit has evidenced the Spirit's life in your life? Not to put salve on the conviction, but to empower that conviction to further growth. And you will see that you are not without hope in those moments. A great athlete, when they're being challenged by their coach, does not hang their head and say, gee, I wish I were just better. They take it and put it into action so they can continue growing. This is why Paul uses athletic metaphors. Don't hang your head and go, gee, I guess I'm not as spiritual as I thought. No, say, Spirit, help me. Help me grow. Help me walk in this identity that you've given me. Thank you for this rebuke. Praise God for this rebuke. For in this rebuke, you are at work. And I can glorify you. In those moments, friends, you are actually on the path of growth and righteousness that the Father has providentially placed you. And you can trust that he will be faithful to complete what he has begun. He will be faithful to bring fruit from the seed that he has planted in your heart when you first heard the gospel and acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of Christ's grace. But God, in his grace, might be using this rebuke this morning to remind you and I of this fact, just as Paul was reminding the Corinthians. So brothers and sisters, if that is you, keep leaning into Christ and his work in you by the Spirit. Gladly accept the rebukes brought by him as you read the word, as you hear from his people, as you hear the word preached, and then lean into Christ and allow him to embolden that new heart that he has given you so that you are instructed in and gladly accept the wisdom that comes from God alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your loving discipline. Thank you for your loving rebuke to the church at Corinth that we can take and apply to our lives. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we as a people can come to you with hearts made new by your spirit, receiving spiritual things as spiritual people. Lord, if there is anyone in here today who does not know you, I pray that the conviction would come that they need to do something with the event of Jesus' death and resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would convert their hearts, change them to be one of your people so that you might draw them into your kingdom and draw them into this people. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in them now. Lord, for those of us who do have your spirit and are converted and are walking with you, I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction to its fullness in us. 
conviction that leads to repentance, that calls us to fall at your feet, to see ourselves rightly, to get rid of any self-righteousness, and to instead know that you are holy and you're drawing us into your holiness. Lord, thank you for that sanctifying force in our lives. Thank you for changing us moment by moment and day by day. Lord, I pray that the hearts in this room would receive this and that you, as as you work through your spirit, would help them to understand what you are asking them to crucify and fight right now in their lives. Lord, I pray that for myself as well. And as we now sing to you and come to your table of communion, I pray that you would remind us of the meaning of communion, that it's been called historically the Eucharist, Eucharisto, meaning thanksgiving in the Greek. Lord, help us to give thanks for the fact that you did not leave us in our sin, but you took on the wrath for it and drew us to yourself and made us new and are sanctifying us by your grace, by grace and grace alone, as we've already sung. Help us to give thanks for that. Help us to acknowledge it and help this time at your table give us great identity that we are your children, spiritual people receiving your spiritual truths. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.